Welcome to the EDGM. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Um, today I'm going to be talking to Dr. Will Sue um, about um, AMI and um, cardiac stuff. So I'd like to introduce um, Will, Dr. Sue. I've known Will for probably 10 or 8 to 10 years um, and I'll just let him introduce yourself. So hey Will, welcome to the show. Hi everyone, thanks Ben for having me Yoop. on your podcast today. Um, Who are you man? So I'm Will, uh, I'm one of the emergency physicians here at Sutherland and also at St George. Awesome. I've been doing this emergency medicine gig for about 10 years now. Awesome. Um, been a consultant for four, um, practicing medicine for about 15 and uh, continue to enjoy that journey. Awesome. Um, Why emergency? Why did you choose emergency? Well, what made you want to do in be a, be a doctor? Oh, to be very honest, um, we a lot of us actually finished med school and oh, it's only a very minority know that they're going to be a neurosurgeon or a mm-hmm. surgeon. Yep. And so I opened up my initial journey as a junior doctor like all of us and just enjoy medicine around. Mm-hmm. There was a point in time where I'm like, mm, I don't know what I really want to do. Yep. And so I took a gap year. A lot of people yep. do that. And I'm very proud of it. I think yeah. it's important to understand that you may not know your future immediately. So I took some time off, yeah. um, traveled, played some golf. Played some golf? Yeah. You like golf? Yeah, I played some golf back then. Still trying to, still trying to, <laughs> trying to play. <laughs> still trying to play, but um, maybe not so much in, in the recent times. Yeah. But um, but there was still something that I needed to connect with my skill set and my training, and medicine yeah. has always been part of my life. Yeah. And I got involved with a bit of locum work, like a lot of our locums here now. Yeah. And I continue to practice my medicine. And it wasn't then, it was only then I realized, well, there's something quite interesting that I'm doing. Yeah. Like you do all the ward work, you do all the paper pushing, you're somebody sort of, I was really good at getting consults and cannulas, but yeah. there was just, that wasn't an end job, you know, that's yeah. not a career path. And emergency medicine was where I started to explore and see raw medicine, take control, be... I guess, responsible for my patient and mm. started to understand what it is about being a clinician. So mm. that probably started a lot of the days in, uh, I did a lot of work in Tamworth yeah. as a, a locum at, at the time. I probably spent about 15 months doing so. Okay. And then I realized that this is what I want to do. This is what I want to be. I want to see myself. I, I love the lifestyle, lots of flexibility, lots of free time. I can choose when I work, when I'm off, I pretty much off at that point in time. Yeah. And then I started my training at St. George back in 2010. Nice. And one thing I know about Will is that he's always got some good kicks on. Uh, he's always wearing nice. At the moment, black scrubs with some nice kicks. He's always got good kicks. Mate, what's yeah. with the kicks? You love it? Um, you I love know, shoes? It's just, I guess, a bit of a fad in, in, in the short term. Like, uh, I don't know, I guess we need some retail therapy. Yeah, we do. <laughs> and a good watch. And, and a good watch. And yeah, that too. And it was just fun just... You know, realize online shopping is so easy. <laughs> like you just go click, click, click. You just got to make sure you you rack enough, um, uh, I guess, products <laughs> to get the free shipping, and then boom, it's at your door in two days. And then Love a lot it. of the services now, it's really good because you just send them back, and they've got no questions asked and get your money back. It's so, good, mate. I love it. But also, it's important because I, I like um, I like the kicks because I match with my my, my kids. Yeah, you, I think it's quite fun. It's good. You got to look. You got to look good with the, the whole pair, mate. Um, I've brought you on the show, and you've you know come to talk, which is awesome. I'm really stoked to have you here to talk about um. STEMIs um, and to talk about um, ACS pathway. Can you talk to us a little bit about cardiac stuff? So um, I, when you when you asked me to think about STEMI, yeah. I thought about, oh, this is like 101 of medicine. Like, yeah. This is like the question one yep. of medical school management. And yeah. it's something that we, sh- we need to be very comfortable in terms of managing, 
in terms of recognizing and execute a specific treatment properly. Um, and this is another one of those cases where it's your, cl your clinical judgment and suspicion. You can't always necessarily rely on subsequent tests or some sort of confirmation. This is where your clinical judgment rules and it's all come down to your decision making. Perfect. Um, I guess STEMI by definition is a heart attack. Yep. You know, like it's problem. I think of it simply as a plumbing problem. Yep. The plumbing problem is that you need your heart tissue to pump blood around the body. Okay. But the heart tissue itself needs blood supply. There's a plumbing problem. The pipes or the vessels where you supply blood, there's a blockage there. Okay. No blood, no oxygen, heart muscle dies, person may die or suffer some sort of you know, long-term catastrophic effect. So that's how I think of the simplistic no. term. Clear. And a lot of the treatment that we provide is about you know, fixing that plumbing problem. Okay. Um, yeah. No, it's good. It's clear. You know, the the plumbers. It's good to sort of put it put it that way. It well, that's it what the visual. cardiologists think. They they've got the electrical guys yep. and the plumbers. Yeah. And in this case, it is a plumbing problem yep. which we identify. The whole clinical syndrome is an aftermath of the blockage. Okay, good. And then we can recognise both the historical examination findings and also in this case, the main thing is the ECG. That's yep. the that's the crux of the diagnosis to recognise this condition. Great. That's really clear. Um, so I guess for those of us out there that are you know, new in, in emergency medicine, um, we're going to talk through just, I guess, how you would approach a patient, um, how you would look, look at your patient when they come in the door um, working in an emergency setting. So your patient comes in the door, Will, they've been put on a bed. Um, can you talk us through maybe some of your clinical you know, assessments of the patient, how you, would, how you would look at them? So I think the system's been built pretty well to recognise problems like this yep. um, through training, recognition, um, chest pain syndrome itself is, you know, it's a red flag for all people, whether it's triage, clerical staff, doctors. So having said that, there is, we need to sort of pick out the specific cases, but all the, I guess, chest pains, the key is ECG. Yep. And getting an ECG within the 10 minutes is our goal within our guidelines. Yep. So early recognition, early ECG and early interpretation. So when it comes to assessment, I think of history, examination, and investigation. Yep. So the classic historical features for a STEMI or acute myocardial infarction is crushing retrosternal chest pain with radiation to the neck or to the uh, left arm. Mm -hmm. I would say that's probably the minority of the cases I actually see, although it is a very textbook description. I would say anyone with chest pain is suspicious for an infarct, and in this case, suspicious for a STEMI. I guess anecdotally, I feel that the younger the patient, the more dramatic they'll be. <laughs> Often they're quite agitated, yeah. sweaty, they're restless, they can't settle down. And you see a patient who's sweaty and gray at the end of the bed, who's rolling around, I'm very suspicious. I am managing at least an infarct, if not a STEMI. And that's time critical. Yeah. The trap is though, there are other atypical presentations. You may have a senior who just comes in with some niggly chest pain and you look at the ECG, wow. Or you might get a patient who's diabetic who have very, very limited chest pain. And it's now real, well recognized that that crushing retrosternal chest pain was on literature mainly based on men. Okay. And women can also present very atypically, may not necessarily be crushing. It could be, they may, dis, may describe it as a pleuritic or some sort mm. of atypical feature. But the key is any chest pain plus an ECG will then lead me to think about a diagnosis of an MI or a STEMI. Yep. So that's the history side of things. Um, I also then think about the examination. 
as a purist, we can do the perfect yeah. examination, look for clubbing, look for infective endocarditis and splint hemorrhages. I would say most STEMI patients won't have many specific examination findings. However, part of it that I would be really specifically looking for would be any signs of cardiogenic shock. So I'll do regular blood pressure, five to 10 minutely non-invasive blood pressure, ensuring that I have a decent map, ensuring there is some perfusion. I'll look for any left ventricular failure. So there's any development of pulmonary edema or subsequent right heart failure, elevated JVP. I would say peripheral edema wouldn't be an acute feature that I would look for as STEMI. It's just not not soon enough. Not not far, like there's not enough time to, to develop all that. Usually it will just be chest pain. But if they've got acute heart failure, you may get a new murmur. You may get crepitations. You may get elevated JVP. You may get associated heart failure. You may get hypotension because of cardiogenic shock. Um, and so the key to diagnosis is to look at the ECG. Yep. And the ECG is twelve lead. Yep. It's a, I guess a cross section static image. The key is to interpret, but also to get dynamic or also interval assessment of the ECG itself. Yep. I guess the, um, back to ECGs, yeah. what is an ECG to me? So ECG, I think of it as a snapshot of the electrical activity. There's a particular pattern that um, all the cells demonstrate, which is recorded on paper, looking at the electrical signals, which, uh, which is a surrogate for normal function. The problem in this condition, the plumbing condition or the heart attack is that there's poor blood flow. Yeah. When there's poor blood flow, the tissues are unhappy. When the tissues are unhappy, their ability to contract and relax is often affected. And that's where we get some changes that we can see and more of a pattern that demonstrate that there is some illness, some sort of injury to the heart tissue. So the what we tend to see is that if there isn't a complete blockage or loss of blood flow to the heart tissue, they're screaming out, I'm not happy. Yeah. And that's when you can see the changes in what we described, the ST segments. So the main QRS complex and the T wave, the ST segment then is to suggest, is there some sort of uh, injury, some sort of problem with the repolarization or the relaxation of the heart muscle? Yeah. So classically, if there's elevation from the baseline, from millimeter for the chest leads or 0.5 for the limb leads, is classified as a myocardial infarction, as long as that they're in two consecutive or adjacent leads. So the regions that I think about are, so if it's the front of the heart, what we call anterior leads, V2, V3, V4, they often may be elevated. If it's something at the bottom of the heart, or we call inferior leads, we look at the leads 2, 3, AVF. The lateral leads are looked to the side where one AVL would signal any changes. And there's also the apex at V5, V6, and that's a little tip. Um, the other important thing is not only looking at the one ECG, is looking at checking it in 15, 30 minutes time to see any changes, but also what increases your accuracy or the specificity for this condition is looking for reciprocal changes. Yeah. So you, you, you recognize a pattern, it's anterior leads, there's ST elevation. To make it more specific for a STEMI is look for what we call reciprocal changes, which is to look at the heart from another angle to say, well, I can see changes from the anterior segment, well, I would then now expect from the inferior side, there are some changes to um, support that. And so there's this Pales mnemonic that I often go by to help me think about it. Yep. And that goes by P-A-I-L-S. So that when there's a posterior infarct for P, yep. I expect A, anterior changes. Nice. When there's an anterior infarct, so I'll get ST elevation, I actually expect reciprocal changes, which is ST depression 
in the inferior lead, so 2,3-ABF. So the reciprocal changes are ST depression. It's like seeing the yeah. cha it changes from the other side. So instead of seeing it, the, seeing the line going up, you see it go down. Yeah. Yeah. So inferior changes, I expect lateral ST depression or lateral reciprocal changes. So 2,3-ABF elevation, I would want to see 1-ABL depression. If there's any lateral um, ischemia, I would also then expect some septal changes. The catch to that is often posterior um, uh, STEMIs. We often don't think of it as a STEMI. So that's the kind of trick that posterior infarcts are often just ST depression in your V1, V2 leads. Mm. And that's when you can go in and do some uh, posterior ECGs. It's, in, it's interesting. Then I think that pale stuff, I'll, I'll add it in the show notes because I think that's really, it's a really good um, you know, thing to look at when we're looking at, at 12 yeah, I love ECGs. mnemonics. I always think of mnemonics. Yeah. It's just a memory aid to help me recall information rapidly. Mm. And you're like, on, on a regular shift, you could be looking at uh, you know, 50 to 60 ECGs that are being brought to you by nursing staff mm -hmm. or for instance, if you're working at St George, they're going to show up on your screen to look at. Mm -hmm. How do you uh, deal with the cognitive overload of looking at those 12 leads? Do you follow those mnemonics and keep it really structured? Or do you listen to one of the nurses bring a story to you when they bring a 12 lead? Or Yeah, so the mnemonic is very specific for STEMI. Yep. So only would I, would I, I can, would I'm considering a STEMI, then I'll put on the mnemonic okay, to look cool. for reciprocal changes. Yep. But the most important thing, like we said, assessment is history, exam, investigation. Great. And without a history, without a context, I would not be able to, to interpret that ECG. Yep. I would the first thing before I look at it is I would ask the nursing staff or you know junior doctor. Yep. You know, what is the context of this? Yes, it great. could be an elderly fall from yep. a nursing home. They're eighty-five, and that's why we did ECG. Yeah. It might be a twenty-three-year-old with chest pain. Yeah. So that sort of puts me at. I guess I'm already thinking about well, what's the probability? Yeah. You know, what is a pretest probability of this being? I guess specifically for cardiac problems, because yep. ECG is not just about yep. STEMIs. What is my pretest probability? And that will help me sort of decide, you know, what am I looking at? What am I concerned about? Yep. If they go 55 year old with chest pain and I look at it, well, the first thing I, I think about, is there any acute ischemia? Yep. That, that, that will be the, my starting point is, what is the, what is the history? And, and then correlate that history to the ECG itself. Yeah, great. It's good. It's a good way to think about it, sort of keeping it really structured, yeah, but so also... history is very important. History. And realising that everyone has a role to play if they've... Because you may not have been the person who has assessed the patient. Mm -hmm. So in the person who has assessed the patient, it's really clear to get that thorough history so that it fits into the whole picture of the patient. Then I think about my supportive and specific treatment. Yep. I'll start with supportive first, because yep. specific we can go on about. Yep. But the main, the important sp sp supportive treatment is actually to provide some analgesia, during okay. pain. Yep. Um, anginine is a vasodilator. It reduces the spasm, improves blood flow. So that's a, a first line um, uh, analgesic that we, is, can be provided. Um, just be mindful though, if we are managing a inferior STEMI, then anginine is, is contraindicated given that it reduces the preload and subsequently can worsen your cardiogenic okay. shock. So less blood flow to the heart, less blood to pump. Um, the next thing is to monitor, uh, keep an eye on the oxygenation. Mm -hmm. There has been a lot of evidence and movement to avoid hyperoxia. Yeah. Increased oxygenation actually causes vasoconstriction and can potentially worsen outcome. So I would aim for any saturation between 94 to 98% and I'll be happy with that. Yeah. And I wouldn't actively give more oxygen. If the patient's saturation goes down below 90, and I've got to think, something's not right. Most acute infarcts wouldn't cause a problem oxygenation. 
if they've got low oxygenation, there's something else, whether they've got some baseline COPD, they've already got some established poor oxygenation condition, yeah. or there's something else I'm missing. Coming so that sort of screams a flag if there's low oxygenation. Um, the next thing then in terms of supportive is, uh, we talk about analgesia, the yeah. next line is, if they're really, really in a lot of pain, then I'll give, give morphine. morphine. Again, morphine, 2.5 milligram IV aliquots, I'll check on their pain score, pain or, or response to analgesia in about five, 10 minutes. Okay. Again, there are some um, literature out there which says, oh, morphine can cause yeah. harm. <laughs> if I've got a patient who's just suffering from pain, I am concurrently giving them analgesia and going to definitive care, yeah. which is reperfusion, which is the specific treatment. Yeah. So we mentioned that it's a plumbing problem. Heart tissue needs a pipe, which is a blood vessel. There's a block blockage. That blockage majority of the time is a clot and we need to unblock that clot. That specifically, the mechanical removal of the clot is beyond what we do in emergency yeah. medicine. And that's when we need the interventional cardiologist involved, where they'll perform the angiogram, access the, the actual blocked vessel, either through the radial artery or the femoral artery, where they'll, prov they'll actually place a, a balloon to open up or to dilate the blockage and mm -hmm. then place a stent to prevent further blockages. And so by reperfusing or re-establishing blood flow, we are trying to save the heart muscle from death. Mm. It's thought that if these processes need to be done within three hours, yeah. if we don't re reperfuse within three hours, you know, the heart tissue's gone. Yeah. The goal though, in general, is to actually reperfuse within 90 minutes. Okay. So our aim, when a patient comes in with chest pain, when they come through triage, we're gonna get that ECG within 10 minutes. We're gonna have that interpreted. If we recognize that this is a STEMI, we're gonna get the cardiologist involved and provide specific definitive treatment with reperfusion within 90 minutes, Great. and that's our goal. Yep. Um, so other specific therapy, we talk about blockages. Well, what can we do to prevent or reduce the blockages other than opening it up? So aspirin has been proven, um, multiple trials, improves outcome, reduces the likelihood of uh, further infarcts, strokes, or even death, uh, 30 days or longer, by giving aspirin. So that's why all chest pains essentially will have 300 milligrams of aspirin loading. Unless I'm immediately worried about some other bleeding conditions, but aspirin is by default. Um, what else can we do? So a lot of evidence now is about a second antiplatelet therapy. Um, at Sutherland, we use IV tyrofiban. Yep. It's the uh, chosen protocol as per the cardiologist. Yep. Um, there are other units uh, in, that would use non-tyrofiban like prazogrel and ticagrelor which are well studied yep. but that's a clinician I guess a cardiologist preference yep. there are a few um, cardiologists now who would use you know, um, uh, ticagrelor clopidogrel or um, prazogrel instead of tyro yep. so that but the current pathway in this hospital Here is, is that. tyro yep. and again it's another agent to reduce platelets from clotting to reduce the the clot load and prevent further blockages. Yeah. Um, what else can we do apart from mechanical? Well, there are rare occasions when the cardiologist can't, is not available to perform the angiogram or yeah. perform the the, uh, uh, the angioplasty and stenting. And that's where in our unit, we, we actually do have access to thrombolysis and that's actually using what we call like the clot buster. Yeah or actually use a medication to actually melt the clot away. Yep. So um, the PCI or the 
um, angiogram is actually superior in terms of outcome. Yep. However, it's the second line of treatment. And the con- times when this would occur would be the cardiologist, cardiologist already doing a case yep. on, on the table. There may be rare circumstances where you can't find anybody to perform the um, angioplasty. And that's when we use thrombolysis. Yep. The risk is that there is a slightly higher risk of bleeding. Yep. And you may not actually achieve a complete uh, reperfusion. Yep. And that's when you might need to do a rescue PCI afterwards. Yep. And that's all going to be done in, in that's um, an emergency. consultation. Yeah, exactly. yeah, so that will be done in emergency. I would say the most senior doctor at the time would make that decision. Yep. Will be the consultant during the, the day. Yep. Um, consultant after hours. Yep. The registrar may choose to do it. I would think that they, they may just contact the consultant on call before yep. they go ahead. Yep. Because if they can't contact the cardiologist, that's you know that's a bit of an issue. Yep. Um, with regards to I guess optimizing time to reperfusion yep. or improving blood flow to the heart, we've got the PAPA system. Yep. You might have to refresh me what PAPA stands for, oh. but it's the pre-hospital notification You're where on. ambulances within the district yep. will perform an ECG for specific chest pain syndromes, and if that ECG read by the computer flags as a STEMI equivalent or, or some sort of STEMI, yep. they are then obliged to transfer that ECG to the cardiologist on call, yep. and then they can then work out, is this a STEMI or not? Correct. And as I said before, it's all about the history and ECG. Yep. You don't need any other blood tests or some other you know, X-ray to, to diagnose a STEMI. So yep. this can be done pre-hospital, and that will actually save a lot of time. Yep. It's a STEMI, patients go from the primary site go through ED doors, have initial quick assessment, and then go straight to the cath lab. And people are even bypassing, we're even getting to a stage where we can bypass the actual resus room and go straight through. They go to straight through. That's great. It's quick, perfect. quick stop, they get triage, yep. they go straight to the cath lab. A bit like Macca's drive-through. And so this will be most of, uh, <laughs> would you like fries? Yeah, right? exactly right. I think that might block up your arteries a bit, but hey. Um, but the benefit of that is, let's say, you know, it's, they're arriving in 20 minutes, yep. they're in Bundina or whatever, 40 yeah. minutes. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, the cardiologist can be on their way. Yes. They can call the team in. Yep. Everyone's ready within 40 minutes. Yeah. Because if we're going to have a 40-minute trip to ED and then another 40 minutes for everyone to come in, yeah. that's time. Thanks, 90's gone, yep. And the thought is that, you know, time is myocardium. And so yep. the, and this are these are the measures that we've taken from a system perspective to improve outcomes. Great, it's good, it's a, it's a clear, um, you know, the way in which you've sort of explained that's really clear and it's also good to keep it structured and to realise that we are improving that time to the myocardium and time to the heart, okay. so that's really good. Distracted, but specific treatment. Yeah. So we talked about aspirin. Yep. We talked about uh, early perfusion. Yeah. The other uh, second antiplatelet agent the other arm in treatment that's in the protocols is IV heparin. Okay. So bolusing heparin. It will be it will be four thousand to five thousand units. Yeah. Um, IV heparin. Although there is some emerging evidence, or there is a lack of evidence that actually benefits. However, it's in our protocol in our system, yep. and so that it will be given as per the protocol. Yeah. However, if the patient is at high risk of bleeding like they've got some sort of active bleed yep. or they're known to have an intracerebral intracranial hemorrhage in the past yep. or, or recent um, cerebral tumour removed, that I would double check with both cardiologist patient explain the risks before I administer heparin because okay. the evidence out there of heparin benefiting both heparin and um, low molecular weight heparin 
is actually quite scanty. Okay. So the long-term benefit of reducing death and infarct is actually not there. Wow. So there's, it's gonna, That's good it to may change that. over the next five years in the scene. Yep. But it is ingrained in our practice, ingrained in all our protocols, but the actual benefit of heparin can is quite. Acute coronary syndrome, STEMI, infarcts, so common. Yep. It attracts a lot of attention because you know, it's, it's something that everyone's afraid of, like, yeah. Heart attack, dying yeah. from a heart attack. No one <laughs> and so it's it's something that's refined quite commonly. Yeah. Every three to four years, the National Heart Foundation comes up with their own guidelines and recommendations. Yeah. Every three to four years, the health department will come up with their own guidelines. And so in no October 2019, so this is we're talking about four months ago, yeah. five months ago, there's been a revision of the guidelines from New South Wales Health. Okay. And they've called it the PAXAR pathway nice. um, which stands for the pathway for acute coronary syndrome assessment okay so acronyms it can be we're going to add it to the show notes yep we're going to add it it actually can be accessed when you um, look for it through your um, browsers yep and it would define a lot of the condition explain the pathology but also a working pathway in terms of working up acute coronary syndrome and also in specific, specifically STEMI. It's quite colourful too. It looks like it's easy to read. You know, it sort of stands out. There's a couple of ECG stuff on there as well. There is a lot of information and a lot of the information may need a little bit of um, review or, or dissecting. Um, at the end of the day though, a lot of it is the summary of, you know, you've got a block vessel, you need to unblock it as soon as possible. What are our ways of doing it? How do we recognize it? And it's got all that information there. So Great. it's also got um, your doses for thrombolysis, your antiplatelet therapy. It's got your definition of the ST segment changes um, based on both. Because I talked about the general rule of you know one millimeter um, chest leads, 0.5 for limb leads. They've actually refined it to improve the specificity so that you know men above or below 40 will have, you know, 2.5 or two millimeter changes for the chest leads respectively. Okay. Women is only 1.5. Yeah. For me, I think it's important to recognize these, but for me, anyone who's over one, I'm very suspicious okay. because I don't want to delay because the problem is if we wait for it to go to 2.5, that could be another half an hour. Yeah. If I see a pattern where there's ST elevation in the anterior leads and there are reciprocal changes, that's enough for me to call yep. the cardiologist and I wouldn't want this patient um, reviewed for early uh, reperfusion. Yeah. So, but all that information is in, in the new pathway. Perfect. Um, it, it's a good way to for us to be uh, contemporary, at least know what the latest hospital or institutional guidelines are yeah. about. And it's on the ACI uh, yeah, website. ACI, well. yep. yep. Which is good, so you can find it on the ACI as well if you need it. Mm-hmm. That's really good, Will. Um, I think it's important to sort of to go through that stuff. Anyone that doesn't have, let's say someone comes in and they've got chest pain but they don't have any ECG changes, um, but you're suspicious of something, what, what, what's your pathway with that? If you've got- So, I guess, again, so, specific, support is specific and disposition. Yep. So if I'm suspicious, yep. this person is high risk, I'll make sure their pain is under control, yep. so anginine morphine as required. Yep. I'll repeat ECGs 20, uh, 30 minutely. Yep. At that point, if I look, interpret ECG, and it's not a STEMI or yep. a STEMI mimic, then I'll, they'll go into the high risk or the ACS pathway, yep. which would then would equate to serial troponins yep. at zero and two hours. Good. If there are sig- clinically significant troponin rise, then they will then be funneled into the non-STEMI pathway. Yep. If they are still negative, but they're high risk, yep. I will then 
work out their previous interrogation, what are the risks like, yep. you know, what is the benefit for t- intervening. So a 35-year-old or 50-year-old has a lot to gain compared to an 89-year-old nursing home patient. Yeah. So they're the things that I will consider on how much I escalate because an angiogram for an 89-year-old nursing home isn't going to change his outcome. He's going to go back to nursing home. Yep. But if I can resolve a 35 or a 55-year-old in terms of their acute coronary blockage, it will help with the symptoms and perhaps improve their quality of life and reduce the likelihood of an infarct and subsequent heart failure. Great. So you're almost looking at the patient holistically and thinking how can this blockage cause greater damage to the, to the patient as well? Yep. yep. And and again, it's um, a lot of it, it can be controversial in yeah. terms of, you know, are we doing more? Are we actually affecting outcome? Yeah. I would say at the minimum is that we recognise and we get our subspecialists involved and they can follow up the long-term yeah. long-term problems. One thing you mentioned about pad placement, I know sometimes we get a bit flustered when we're throwing pads on a patient. Is there any preference you have to pad placement um, for those when you're, when you're concerned that someone could have an arrhythmia? Are you throwing you know, pads AP? Like, you know, is there anything that you prefer? Or? I don't have a preference. Cool. An- anterolateral is the most convenient. Yep. In theory, yep. if I put anterior posterior, it may be more effective in terms of defibrillating or yep. in terms of shocking a patient out of a, a, a some sort of dysrhythmia. Yep. Um, but to me, I don't have a specific preference. Okay. It's A lot of it comes down to convenience. Yep. And if your patient is sitting in the ED for an extended period of time, you've started your treatment, blood tests, if you're waiting for, you know, you, you know that cardio has been called in, they're going to be half an hour, 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. Would you be doing any sort of blood tests on your patient in that meantime? Would you be looking at any electrolytes if you're waiting or do you think you're just sort of follow, like continuing to follow that pathway? So a minimum is your troponin. Yep. Often it's important to, um, we've got to be mindful of what tests we order. Yep. But my minimum order set would be full blood count, EUC and a troponin. Great. In the interpretation of troponin T that we've got, yep. it may be elevated if there's a renal impairment. Yep. And so that would give us an ID. If a troponin is 50, it may be because they've got impaired renal clearance. Yeah. Will, give us a, like, in, in closing and in sort of wrapping stuff up, yep. give, me, give me a case, give me something that you remember um, that's come through the door, obviously they identified it, that you remember and I guess it was a learning point for you, so something that you will remember um, I don't know, something that you can take home, people can take home for learning. So I guess if you were to sum up everything, how would you sum it up? What brings it to life? So the memorable case, I was night shift here as a registrar, so the elderly gentleman had chest pain. He actually looked, he actually didn't look too bad, but every now and then I go, oh yeah, I've got some chest pain now. Initial ECG, which we didn't really explore today, is a left bundle. Okay. And... Back in med school, oh, left bundle, can't interpret any further. Okay. Which is actually a load of crap. So <laughs> you can interpret further, and there is something called the Scarboza criteria, which yep. you can apply to work out on the likelihood of this being a clinically significant acute left bundle, as opposed to just a change due to previous heart injury and problems with conduction or electric, of electrical activity. So first ECG, when he had pain previously, a simple left bundle. but because we know that heart attacks or STEMIs are all a dynamic process, we do serial, tripo- uh, serial ECGs, and we did 30 minutely, one hourly, and we captured some changes. Okay. And even the left bundle had changed and started to show features consistent with a positive Scarboza, okay. which would suggest that this patient is actually having an acute infarct. 
And based on that, it was like serial, serial ECGs every time for all patients with all chest pain. And that's what I do. I sign the first one. I ask the nurse, give me another one in 30 minutes. Yeah, great. I have to at least look at two because you haven't assessed the patient completely till you've got serial ECGs. Okay. So that particular case, there were dynamic changes equivalent to STEMI, 3 a.m. called cardiologist. Um, they're like, are you sure? I'm like, I'm pretty sure. Took him to cath lab, comes back two hours later, good job. So there Great. was, there was an occlusion. Um, there was, you know, re- required reperfusion. And that's because we recognize the changes on the ECG and it's got nothing to do with your opponents. So STEMI has got nothing to do with it. Great. And it's good It's good to make that really clear to people. And I think sometimes, and the, all these cases, sometimes they occur at weird times in the morning when you don't have sometimes that supportive stuff around you. Yep. So we need to make that diagnosis pretty much within the first three minutes. Yep. STEMI or not. Yep. So it's ECG, chest pain. And for your junior doctors that are coming through learning how to read ECGs, do you give them, you know, there's life in the fast lane, there's a few stuff that's up there on that. Do you give them um, any tips or do you think that it's just practice, practice, practice that gives them some... So life in the fast lane is a good starting point. Yep. We have six monthly ECG accreditation, which we're going to continue to build. Yep. And so that'll be an experience for them to look into. Yep. And a lot of the time we can go through challenging ECGs bedside with the registrar. Great. And, and I think it's important that you put yourself at the, t- at the crease yeah. and make those decisions and, and, and interpret them. Yeah, and I think that's the greatest thing I've learned about you, Will, is that you'll give even the nursing staff ECGs and they'll, you'll, you can say to them sometimes, oh, hey, what's going on with this? Or even I've seen you do it with junior doctors. And, and it's great to, to have the, um, yeah, to be able to have a go and to learn how to, to sort of interpret and to be not afraid to be wrong. <laughs> that's right. So a yeah. lot of it is is... It's just a snapshot. It's yeah. not a fixed answer. Yeah. So you just need some time for it to declare itself. And again, sometimes we do get things wrong. However, it's what we can learn from it and take it on next time. Mate, it's been a, pr- a pleasure having you on here. Um, I'll enjoy playing some golf or even doing some cycling with you. But um, dude, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for your knowledge. Mm-hmm. And um, we'll have you back on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Legend. You. Thank you.